Welcome to NC Retold. A place where we get to know North Carolina. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Corey George. Today's episode of NC Retold is brought to us by Pilot Surveying and Engineering, providing civil engineering and land surveying services across the Carolinas. Check them out on the web at www.pilotse.com. Joining us today is someone who I believe is directly responsible for the rise of NASCAR popularity in the 80s and early 90s. He's a legend in NASCAR circles, a marketing genius, a sailor, and helicopter pilot. There isn't much our guest today hasn't done and done well. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited to announce our latest guest, Mr. Sid Morris. Appreciate you doing this. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Mr. Morris, you're from Asheboro originally, right? Uh, just call me Sid. Sid? All right. Okay. Mr. Morris was my dad. And I am from <laughs> Asheboro, uh, son of Bob and Market Morris, and born in Randolph County Hospital and uh, grew up there all my, all my life. Okay. What's life like growing up in Asheboro? It was great. It really was. It, it was really good. We lived on a block that had, uh, where our house was located, we had a creek that came by it, and it was a big, was a big city block, but it was kind of, uh, the houses were built around the edge of it, and I would say there was probably f- five or more acres in the center of the block that was just natural. It was uh, trees and woods and places you could build tree houses and dig caves and never leave the block right so it was very uh you, you could live your life in that one block so it was right. a pretty interesting place to live sounds like a kid's paradise it was and you could walk uptown and go to the movies and you could walk over to my grade school and my grammar school was just on the other side of the block so i could take my lunch there or back then you could leave and walk home and have lunch and then go back right to school so it was a wonderful place to grow up and wonderful family and wonderful friends and just great a great all around town it still is still is so your dad was a builder right he was a real estate and development business yes he he uh uh there's an old saying that says my my dad and my granddaddy bought and sold Randolph County twice. My dad <laughs> bought it and my granddaddy gambled it away. But uh, uh, I don't know about that. But I know that my granddaddy owned the livery stable. And uh, <clears throat> my dad grew up uh, with him working with horses. And my, gra- my dad always had horses. He, he, uh, he had two stables in Southern Pines. And uh, he held a high jump record, uh, uh, seven feet, two inches. Uh, in North Carolina, and I don't know if it's ever been broken. Wow! Um, but he was quite a horseman. Uh, he was also a, uh, a legendary golfer. He played with Sam Steed and Julius Boyce. Used to come to our house on Sundays, and my mother would make him a basket of chicken. And they would go to Sedgefield Country Club in Greensboro, and they would play. And uh, I never knew why, because I was just a, a little boy. And I would go with them, and I've got pictures of 
me there with a caddy and my little knickers on and my hat and beanie hat and my little clubs. And <laughs> uh, my dad and Sam Snead had pictures of them, and you can't tell them apart. They look like identical twin brothers, and they, and he could play with them. I mean, he, he was as good as they were. But back in those days, you couldn't make money playing golf. Right. I mean, you just, it was not a, there was no tour, none of that. So they were, I found out later in life and I mean much later in life, but when I got to college that my dad finally confessed to me that he was taking them up there because they wanted him to introduce them to people at Sedgefield Country Club that wanted to gamble and play for, for money. Okay. And that way they would play for money. And my dad would just kind of say, well, Jim, if you want, you know, cause they knew my dad hung out with Boris and Snead. They were from down in Southern Pines, Pinehurst area anyway. Mm-hmm. And so he had his stables down there and he knew them and they played down there. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what they did. And, uh, um, he was excellent golfer, a great tennis player. I mean, just everything he touched and never drank, never smoked, never heard him say a, a, a foul word to anybody. Uh, he was just a, he was a great man. Wow. Yeah. And my mother was a great mother. She just, she took care of us. She's one of the best cooks that I've ever, uh, I know I'm bragging a lot on my family, but you asked me about them. So I'm going to tell you. That's why Uh, we're here. She, uh, she was just a phenomenal cook. She came from Saxpaha, North Carolina, but she was a cheek family over there. And she had uh, nine brothers and sisters. And uh, so they had a big family and they grew up on the farm. And I mean, a farm. I mean, they went out and, and killed a chicken on Sunday to, to eat chicken dinner. And, uh, um, they had uh, cows, milk cows and grew, grew, uh, some livestock. Uh, but, uh, she learned to cook and, uh, she was a great cook. She had a, uh, beauty salon, uh, uh, in Asheboro with my other, with her other sister, my aunt Frances. And they, uh, they did hair, and I think my aunt Claudia was there too, and she did worked with them too in their beauty salon. But she was a great seamstress. Everything she touched, it seemed that she was just excellent at it too. Right. So I came from a very talented family, and I was lucky uh, to have a good uh, family. And I've got a sister, one sister, and uh, that's it. We're just kind of a small family, but that's basically the history. Right. Well, it sounds like you. Uh... Sounds like you had a tight-knit family growing up. We did. We did. My father uh, didn't want children. Um, my mother said, she, he said he absolutely didn't want children because he was too busy showing horses and playing golf and playing tennis and building and selling real estate. And he was wide open, and he just didn't want to be bogged down. But then whenever she got pregnant with me and had me, she said <laughs> he he had him a box of cigars running down Main Street in Ashborough, hand a cigar to everybody. And from the day I was born, uh, he just uh, pretty much devoted himself to me. Right. Well, yeah, there's and, nothing uh, like sister. having kids change your life. Oh, yeah. And it changed his, I'll tell you that. Yeah. So, so, I mean, while you were growing up and him being in the real estate business, I mean, I'm assuming you probably helped him out here and there, and maybe that's kind of 
sparked your interest a little bit later in life? Oh yeah, and, I've and always been. We built things. Uh, we we would always build things, and I try to do that with my son Buzz. Is come up early learning how to build things. I built models. I started out building all kinds of model airplanes and boats and you name it. And then I started building a little shed here and there and a cart here and a um you know just first one thing then another and and he would uh he would show me how to do all of that and i've always loved to do create uh and build things yeah so you ended up at ecu and right what you what what took you to ecu and what did you study at ecu well i was going to be an architect i was dead set on being an architect and i uh uh because i loved to to build things and design buildings, uh, stuff like that. And then, uh, uh, I just didn't, didn't have the grades necessary to get into Georgia tech. And if I couldn't go to Georgia tech, I didn't want to go anywhere. So if I couldn't be a rambling wreck at Georgia tech, then I went to East Carolina cause my art professor said, you know, you really should study art. And I said, well, okay. So I decided I would be, uh, I got interested in, uh, advertising and commercial art. So I'm I majored in commercial art. Okay, got a BFA degree from East Carolina, and um, really enjoyed the artwork and the design work and the copywriting and the things it took to make an ad. And uh, I was very focused on that. So I kind of studied that at East Carolina, and then I I uh, left there, and uh, I had a scholarship to Pratt Institute in New York. Um, didn't do it. Didn't like it. Uh, went up there, just turned me off completely. So I came back and came to Charlotte, which the smartest thing I did was not continue academically because right. I pretty much had what the college had to offer. Um, and then I came back to Charlotte. I ended up in Charlotte, uh, for because there weren't any ad agencies in Ashboro, so I came to Charlotte, and uh, then we started. Uh, where I worked with Sonny Smith, who's who was Arthur Smith, the guitar player Arthur Smith, yeah. you know, wrote dueling banjos. Uh, Sonny Smith had an ad agency. We had Martha White, Self Rising Flower, and all that stuff. I mean, he had a TV show, and then Sonny's agency would handle that. So I was creative director for that agency for a while, and then I went out on my own. And uh, started my agency mm-hmm. and uh, Morris International. It was Morris White and Associates to begin with because it was just me in the lobby with a telephone. And then a friend of mine, Stuart White, who I went to school with, graduated. And, I, and he needed a place to, to hang his hat. So I said, why don't we do this? Why don't you come here and you do the art and I'll do the selling and uh, we'll call it Morris White and Associates. And uh, so that's how we got started. Okay. And so how did you, I mean, being in Charlotte and obviously in this neck of the woods, you know, NASCAR was a big, a big thing. I mean, how did you make the transition from Martha White Lauer to sports marketing? Well, <clears throat> I, I didn't know anything about NASCAR uh, at all. And uh, I was doing consumer influence advertising, basically radio and TV, newspaper print, 
brochures, magazine ads, things like that. And uh, we handle Big Waves Radio and WROQ. And we, we were fortunate enough to pick up some big accounts uh, just because we didn't know any better. I mean, right. we, we didn't know that we couldn't do it, so we went out and did it. But uh, <clears throat> So we were lucky in that, in that area. <clears throat> and I was working with um, doing, doing work with Lowe's, and I was up in North Wilsboro, and I got a call um, when I was in this meeting, and, and they said it was an emergency, and you never want to get an emergency call. I mean, it's one of those things that just doesn't uh, – it, it, it kind of makes your heart skip a beat. So I thought something had happened to someone in the family. So I go rush enough to get this telephone call. And it's a, it's a guy by the name of Joe Whitlock, who I, I said, do I know you? And he says, well, I met you over at a home in Moody with Lee Holman the other day when they were doing that engine test for Ford, we're doing a dyno test out there. And I said, so what's the emergency? He said, well, Humpy Wheeler here at the Speedway um, told me that I needed to get an ad agency to do advertising for the Speedway, and that's my emergency. And I said, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. You get me out of a meeting, and, and you, you think somebody, I think somebody in my family's died or had a heart attack or something, and that's your emergency. He says, I know, don't be mad at me, don't be mad at me. He says, could you come out here? If you would just please come out here, and I said, to the Speedway? And he says, yeah. I says, well, that's nothing but a bunch of rednecks. Why do I want to do that? <laughs> and so he said, if you'll just come out here and give me five minutes, that's all I want. So I went out there and I met him. And uh, I was just absolutely taken back by Joe. He was, I call him the Ernest Hemingway of motorsports. He was the best writer. And everybody will say Tom Higgins, who's, God bless his soul, Pat just recently passed away. All the writers in NASCAR would tell you that Joe Whitlock was the Elvis Presley of, of motorsports writers. He was, he was a phenomenally talented person, but had an infectious personality and a laugh that just, just drew you in, you know, and he could tell jokes and stories. And I just spent time like this listening to him talk about it. So long story short, I sat down with him. Of course, I knew nothing about NASCAR. I didn't know who Junior Johnson was or Richard Petty or anybody. And um, so I would go up to Joe's house um, two or three times a week, actually, to have a dinner. Uh, and we would cook a steak or something like that. And he would be out back chopping wood and drinking bush beer. Well, I didn't drink. But he said, you know, if you're, you don't have to drink, he says, but you need to have a Bush beer in your hand because that's the official sponsor of NASCAR. One, right. of, the, one of the sponsors. And I, Cause I didn't know what sponsorship was. And so, so what year was this? 1979. I want to think okay. it was 1979. <clears throat> and so we worked for. Pretty much, this was in uh, the fall, after the the fall race. So we worked up till um, the Daytona race, working on what I call La Plan. And it was the first time anyone had actually written down a marketing plan for selling tickets or selling anything in NASCAR. Back then, it was just... 
they did waybills. What a waybill was is what you'd see for wrestling. You'd see a wrestling match and say, um, Haystack Cal- Calhoun versus Ric Flair Saturday night at Charlotte Coliseum. And it would be on a, a rainbow colored poster. And it would be stapled to a, a telephone pole, you know, just a wooden telephone pole. Okay. That's the way they would advertise. And that's racing was the same way. It was just kind of word of mouth and it was sticking up posters and things like that. Nobody was doing television ads or radio ads or anything like that. And it sounds unbelievable knowing what it is today. Well, that's the way it was. Right. And, and it would, it, of course, they would be sports writers like the Tom Higgins of the world that would write a sports article about racing. But it was nothing. It was very, very backwoods uh, and primitive at the time. And so I wrote this plan because I didn't know any better. I mean, I, I'm uh, I'm an advertising guy. I'm supposed to do planning, and I'm supposed to come up with what we're going to do and all these different steps of how we're going to go do it. Right. And uh, so I wrote this this Laplan, and uh, Joe and I presented it to Humpy Wheeler. And I'm not so sure Humpy quite understood it. Um, he appreciated it because he was a promoter and a, a brilliant promoter. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best promoters. Um, and But he, he kind of let us do our thing. And uh, William Jeans, he used to, Joe knew him real well because he was, he was the publisher of Car and Driver magazine. And Joe's job was to write public relations articles to send to people like, he said, William, don't call me Bill Jeans. He didn't like to be called Bill. So they, he said, William, don't call me Bill Jeans. And he looked at our plan. Joe sent it to him. To, I said, find somebody else that knows something to see if this makes any sense yeah. to him. So he sent it to him and he wrote back, the Bible of motorsports marketing. That's all he said. He said, that's the Bible of motorsports marketing. That's awesome. And so we used that, and uh, NASCAR came to us later. Okay, so this started out for the track. Speedway. It's Charlotte Motor Speedway. Yep. And then NASCAR came later. Was, was NASCAR organiz- organizing sort of a overall marketing plan? Did they have something similar, or were, was it basically left up to each track? Each track. Mm. There was no... There was no coordinated marketing area at, or department of NASCAR at all. Okay. NASCAR, Na, what most people don't understand about NASCAR is NASCAR is a sanctioning body. They sanction races. Their job is to go put a race on. Okay. So they would come into Charlotte Motor Speedway for the May race, for example, and they would bring the officiating in. Hmm. They would they would they would they would come and do the technical um, shop work of weighing the cars and and running the race. Their job was to come in and actually af- officiate the race, just like the officials in a football game. Gotcha. <clears throat> the uh, speedway was in charge of selling tickets and putting people in seats, mm-hmm. and so that's what we were supposed to do. And. Uh, we we did the first research because I, I you know I asked what I thought were pretty simple questions like where do, who buys your tickets where do they come from I mean do they 
What's those go, demographics look like? like? Nobody knew where they came from. So what we did was we put together a program that actually tracked where the I, I said, well, how do you sell a ticket? Well, we got we got ladies downstairs that answer phones and and sells them over a telephone. I said, okay, so people call in, and then you send them tickets, right? Well, can you get me the addresses of where you send the tickets? So they, I had them compile where they went, and we found out that Richmond, Virginia, bought more charlotte motor speedway tickets than anybody else wow and um so we did things like that and then uh um as i i take we were the first we we had the first sellout crowd in the history of nascar the first track to ever sell out of tickets and that was the next um may race World 600 was what it was called at the time, not right. the Coca-Cola world, but the World 600. And, um, and, and we sold out early, real early. And, um, uh, which is also unheard of because most times that we come, we, people would walk up yeah. uh, and buy tickets. And so Humpy, uh, and Ken Squire of CBS, called me and said, can you come to Atlanta? Cause we're having a meeting to figure out why the Charlotte motor speedway is selling out of tickets. I said, it's real simple. It's cause I'm handling the advertising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kidding with him. Everybody was laughing. <laughs> and so we went down there and, and we're sitting around and going, well, what, why all of a sudden you do a little bit of advertising? I'm talking about a little bit. I mean, I'm talking. I don't, I'm embarrassed to even say what the budget was. Okay. <laughs> so we, if you do a little bit of advertising, and we sell out of tickets, and Humpy, the consummate weatherman, stands up in the middle of the room and he says, "Daytona 500 happened on February the 18th, whatever the date was that it was." Somebody look up what the weather was on that day. Well, the whole East Coast was snowed in. So, and, and it was also the first flag to flag television coverage of a NASCAR race because what had happened was in Wide World of Sports, NBC would, would have, uh, downhill skiing, uh, a NASCAR, a little bit of NASCAR. They would have a rodeo and they would have something else. They would have in, in a two hour span or three hour span, they would have four sports that they would go back and forth to. I don't know if you remember that or not, but that was way back in those days. CBS just broadcast the first flag to flag full race on a day when all the good old boys that were normally out with six pack of beer in a, in a bass boat fishing or playing golf or hunting were stuck at home in yeah. front of a television watching, watching TV and this thing called NASCAR at this place called the Daytona 500. And it just so happens that on the last lap, Kale Yarborough and Bobby Allison tangle up hit the wall and come inside 
the infield at the very I'll turn three on the last lap and then get out of the car on top of that and start fighting. <laughs> yeah. If you I, remember that. I've heard this, that this is the infamous Daytona 500 that right. they, essentially they, kick-started they, NASCAR. There was a stardom. picture of Cale Yarborough hitting Bobby Allison, and Bobby's a really good friend of mine. As a matter of fact, I saw Bobby last Monday. Um, and a picture of his head going back like this, of Cale Yarborough like this. And it was on all the newspapers. Oh, my goodness. And it was on live TV. And they replayed it and replayed it. And uh, uh, it was, everybody's going, you got to be kidding me, man. They're racing. They beat these cars up. They run into each other. Then they get out of the race cars. They start fighting. Man, that sold tickets. That sold tickets. Now, you take that dynamic right there, and you look at where it is today, and that's why you don't see the grandstands full. Right. That's that's it in a nutshell. We could sit here and spend two days talking about why NASCAR today is not what it was then, but that's what it was. Well, that, that race that you're talking about seemed, at least from my understanding, the rise of the popularity of NASCAR. That is what sparked it. I mean, Exactly. That's why and, and we the, sold out of tickets to Charlotte. Yeah. And that, that was when, I mean, through the, the nineties, when we had some real, I mean, villains and heroes against each other who are now, you know, either not with us anymore or retired. Well, you had, you had, you had had real, I don't want people to take this the wrong way, but, but you had real men that were rough around the edges that the average guy could relate to. Right. You know, I mean, I got mad and I got out of the car and I started beating on this other guy. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the, that's, that's, that's a real hero. That's a real person really doing what would really happen. Well, as things happened over the years and NASCAR got more corporate, they got the feeling in Daytona that corporations wouldn't like that, that it would be, and I don't know who came up with this brilliant concept that they wouldn't like it, but they came up with the idea that fighting and, and carrying on and, and doing stuff like that um, was not good for the sport. I have no idea who came up with that concept. I've, I've got some, you know, just in the back of my mind, I can imagine kind of where it came from. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is they didn't know marketing. They didn't know how a ticket was sold, why a ticket was sold, why a person bought a ticket, because they didn't care about it. Right. NASCAR, sanctioned body, cared about the cars setting the cars up, making sure you weren't cheating or at least catching the people that were. They didn't, they knew nothing about selling tickets. Well, that's all we did here. Yeah. That's all we cared about was selling tickets. So we would, we would create drama. And if there wasn't a controversy going on, I mean, Tom Higgins wrote an article one time and he said, when Humpy Wheeler, and Bruton Smith and Sid Morris get inside a room 
concocting the program for the upcoming race, smoke starts coming out from under the door <laughs> because it was always something, you know, Bruton was a great promoter too. A lot of people really don't realize how smart Bruton Smith really was because he would do things that Humpy and I would look at each other like, scratch our head a little bit about, well, why do you want to build condominiums, you know, out here? You know, he would, he would always be coming up with new ideas and new things that of course meant more work. I mean, I had to market them up. You had to build them, you know, it was, it was more work, but they were all successful. Right. And, uh, that combination, you know, it's just, uh, it's just like the Patriots football team. You got the right, the right combination, and that's why they won so many Super Bowls. Right. So you brought Tide into NASCAR and among other high-profile sponsors, right? And that had really never been done before um, until you did it. So, I mean, how did you get the idea to go chase a big company like that? And how did you get them to agree to come in and do something that had, hadn't really been done before? And what, what kind of... I mean, obviously, it paid dividends for them. I mean, how did you come up with the idea for that? How did you, I mean, how, how do you even make that happen? I didn't come up with the idea. Okay. Uh, Joe Whitlock again um, calls me up on the telephone, and uh, he said, uh, my good friend, Bob O'Deer, uh from from R.J. Reynolds has left R.J. Reynolds is now taken over as head of Wrangler, and Jack Watson, who was his marketing director for R.J. Reynolds Special Events, has gone with him to Greensboro, and they want us to come up there because they want to go racing. They want to take Wrangler jeans racing. I said, really? So we get in the car and we ride up there. And Bob and Jack and Joe and I sit in the room and they, we, we concoct a plan for Wrangler jeans of, of, uh, they were very, very smart, very smart people and, uh, brilliant really. And, uh, they knew what sports marketing can do for a brand and being the new president of Wrangler, he he knew what to do. I right. mean, he didn't. He didn't have to guess. He said, "I'm going to put the Wrangler on a car, and then what are we going to do Midwest?" Everybody's going, "Wait a minute, Mid Midwest farm country." Oh, we'll do tractor pull. We'll do Wrangler tractor pull. Oh, what are we going to do out west? Well, there's only one thing you do out west. That's rodeo. Well, how about that place called California? What do you do out there? Uh, Supercross. Hmm. There was a there was a promoter out there that that promoted a Supercross race in the L.A. Coliseum. That was the darndest event you've ever seen. He would he would put dirt. He would fill the L.A. Coliseum with dirt, and he would take dump trucks up the stairs at the end of the Coliseum, dump dirt down there all the way through the back and back down the other set of stairs wow. in the Coliseum, and you, and your and the guys would ride up do the course, ride up the, the the steep end of the Coliseum, jump up 
hit another berm, come back and jump all the way off the top, all the way back down to the bottom of it. All these riders. I mean, it was a huge, huge event. So anyway, we put that together and then we did rodeo, tractor pull, supercross and NASCAR. And we got this rookie of the year punk called Dale Earnhardt to drive the car. And I say that with all due respect. He was a dear, a dear friend and a great guy. And, and we all know what kind of driver he was yeah. to drive the Wrangler car. And that's the way it all started. And it wasn't my idea. It was just Whitlock carrying me up there and with us being fortunate enough to put it together and a lot of hard work. And I mean, we did 604 rodeos. For Wrangler. I mean, wow. this, is, this is a little agency here in Charlotte did. It doesn't sound so little anymore. Well, it, it was pretty, <laughs> we had a, we had a lot of, a lot of work cut out for us, but, uh, but that's what started it. That's, uh, wow. I, I would, I would just imagine having all of those pieces coming together at once. And then of all people, Dale Earnhardt. Driving the Wrangler car. I mean, well, that's just one of those things. Perfect storm. It is. And and it's, I mean, you know, people look at successful people and say, well, you know, you're sure, you sure are lucky. And the ones that tell you that it's, sure, it's a lot of hard work. Don't get me wrong. Everybody that's successful, and I mean, everybody that's successful, put a tremendous amount of work into their success, but they had to have the stars align at some point in time. It wasn't yeah. always an uphill battle. I mean, they there, if you look at every successful situation out there, the stars align at some point. Now, did they, there's a lot of people out there that were not successful that the stars aligned for. They didn't take advantage of it. Right. You know, so the successful people are the ones that were hard workers out of bed early in the morning understood what lay in front of them and, and, and did it. And, and we did, I mean, we worked, our agency worked extremely hard at, at, at that business of doing the best marketing you could for whatever sport it was we were doing. And that led to other clients coming to us and we saw what you did for Wrangler. Can you do it for, for us and we yeah. sure. I want, so I wonder how, I mean, how would somebody that left RJR know that sports marketing was the way of the future for them? Because that's what he was doing. That's what Odeer was doing. Okay. See, at the time. I mean, they had the, the Marlboro of, car in Formula One. Well, yeah, but there, Winston, but, Winston Cup. Okay. I mean, Winston 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 sponsored over 102 events. Yeah. Spo- I mean, not just singular events, but sports. Right. Okay. They were the world's largest sports sponsor by far. Well, the head of that division of R.J. Reynolds was Odeer. Okay. And Watson was his right-hand guy. So, so if there's anybody in the world that yeah. knows how it works to sell cigarettes – I mean, they they knew how to sell cigarettes with sports marketing. Well, so what? It's a pair of jeans. It's no different. I mean, people buy cigarettes, they buy jeans. Yeah. So that's what it was. It was not magical. It was just 
Damn. Well, you got to be smart enough to realize and apply different situations to new things. I mean, that's in, innovation is I mean, what drives everything. Well, yeah, but it was a snowball effect then. What yeah. happened was Wrangler came in and did it. And nobody else was doing it. We happened to be at the right place at the right time with Speedway, with Joe, yeah, the relationships. Nobody knew how to do it. We had to make it all up. I mean, it's just like a, it's just like a band. It's just like a, if, if you look at the successful band, um, you know, whether it be the Grateful Dead or the Beatles or whatever, they start out as a, as a ragtag bunch of musicians that don't know what they're going to do. And then what happens? They, they write a song and then something happens to that song and then they write another one and something happens to that one. And then they struggle a little bit. Well, it's the same way with us. We just did this program and then people saw it and, um, said, who did it? Well, those guys did it. And we were the only guys doing it. So we kind of had a leg up on everybody else yeah. because the big agencies in New York, um, they didn't know how to do what we were doing. And, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, with the Tide program, when Tide came to us, we, we had, we had done, um, and it's too long a story to tell, but we were doing Crisco shortening car with Buddy Baker. And it was so successful in sales that Tide was down two points in the South. And for them to be down two points is Big, big problems with them. They take that very seriously. Um, to give you an idea how big Tide is, uh, Tide represented 25% of the, of the gross for Procter & Gamble, that one brand wow. of, of 96 brands. So <clears throat> they saw what Crisco was doing, and the Crisco sales went through the roof. We had Loretta Lynn and Buddy Baker, and uh, – uh, so people were really responding well to it, and they were selling uh, a lot of, of, of Crisco shortening. So um, the Tide guy saw that and said, well, who did? They talked to a guy by the name of Ed Liebzeit. Ed was the, the uh, marketing director for um, uh, the food division. Package soap and detergent guys called Ed and said, who did your Crisco car, and he said, uh, Mars International down in Charlotte says, well, can they, could they come up here and talk to us about doing a Tide car? He said, sure. So he called me on a Wednesday and asked me if I could be there on Thursday. And I said, sure. And so I did the, that Tide car design up there with my art director, who was an excellent, uh, airbrush artist at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, he, he did, a we had a, we had a template, a Chevrolet template and a Ford template that had the, had the side of the car and the top of the car so that you could see where the logos would go all mm -hmm. the way around the car. And the car was pointing that way, the car was pointing this way, and the car was like, like this. And so we just did this, the uh, top of the car and the side of the car with the Dayglow orange. And he said, I, I don't have that. And I said, I went down to the art shop and I got Dayglow orange. Instead of orange, I got mm -hmm. the day low, just like on a box. And we made it look just like a Tide box. And that's all I took with me. So when I went up there the next day, I didn't have, I had a notepad and that piece of artwork flapped. And um, 
Scott Lutz was the brand manager for Tide at the time. And Scott was, uh, I want to say Scott was 27 years old. But he had a $20 million signing capacity. He could sign for up to $20 million and didn't have to ask anybody. So he was very smart and uh, had a lot of a lot of power. And he said, well, what idea do you have for us? And I said, well, this is the only idea I've got. And I slid it across the table and he... When he opened it up, he could see you could see his face light up because of the dayglow orange hitting his face like yeah. neon, <laughs> and this big smile came across his face. He goes, "Man, that is serious. You mind if I borrow it?" And I said, "No, it's yours." He took off down the hall, uh, talked to the the head of package soap and detergent, and asked Steve you know, what he thought of it. And he opened it up and looked at it. He says, that's the best embodiment of the Tide Brand I've ever seen right there. Do it. He said, well, don't I have to ask anybody? He says, well, you can't bid creativities, Scott. You know, you can go across the hall and ask the head of legal over there and he'll tell you the same thing. And matter of fact, go just go do that. And he'll tell you that, no, you... If if someone designed that and that's create there, there's nobody else that can do it. You can't bid it out. Yeah. So we did uh, get it, and that's how we got it. And it was like a thirty minute meeting, and then the rest of the meeting was explaining to me how they do their budgeting and what we needed to do. And it was the most successful program, and I I don't think anybody has really been able to do better than the tide brand did just because here again it stars aligned it was it was a it was a great car design we got rick hendrick we got daryl waltrip we got waddell wilson we got jeff hammond i mean these are legends now we got the super team right yeah um and, and we got the number one brand of procter and gamble which is the number one marketing company in the world so you can't put more superstars in one box. Well, we didn't win one race. <laughs> we we came out of the barrel in Daytona. I almost won a race, but that's the closest we came to winning a race all year. But it was the most successful program to hit the sport. Everybody was trying to figure out what the you know what we were doing, and uh, so that was kind of how it all happened. And I. You know, I'd like to say I had a lot to do with that, but, and we did, we did from the standpoint of d doing the car design was key. Um, but there again, going back to that band analogy, that, that one hit song, you know, leads you to another, leads you to another. So that's kind of how that happened. That's wild. It's really interesting. I mean, from this, from my chair, it sure sounds like you, may be directly responsible for the rise of NASCAR and its popularity in the in the early nineties and late eighties and I mean I mean you had a direct hand into making NASCAR what it ultimately turned into. Well we did. I mean there there's no question that the programs we put together were the foundation of the sport. Basically that's but then again there was not another Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. Or Daryl Walter. Or Bobby out. I mean, when you when you look at the personalities and Humpy Wheeler and Bruton Smith, when you look at the personalities 
Big Bill France. I mean, if if you just look at the personalities of the uh, junior John, I mean, the list goes on of the personalities that were there. The fact that we put the money in, in other words, that's that's what kind of put the rocket fuel on NASCAR was yeah. the ability to put that kind of money in there. Because see, they up until then sponsorship was almost zippo. I mean, they, they, there were people running cars that had Joe's garage on it. You know, I mean, you know, it was it was just. Um, I mean, it, the the drivers would have to make friends with restaurant owners. And, and I remember Dick Brooks, he knew every restaurant in every town we would go to because that's where he, that's where he got free food. That's the only way they could eat. You mm. know, they would, they, they would figure out a way to get a hotel where three or four of them staying in a room. Uh, it was, it was desperate times, but then whenever the money came in and started putting some serious money in, then, it came time for the teams to do some serious performing, clean up their act. Get, yeah. get, don't don't have a uh, a greasy garage floor. Uh, it's got to be sparkling in there, and uh, so it all that changed. And uh, yeah, we were we were lucky. I mean, we were we were lucky growing up in the time we grew up in, um, and th- and we were lucky that we were at that stage of the sport. There won't be that stage of the sport ever again because you will never have those personalities again. Right. Hmm. So you're, you also dabble in other sports as well, right? Mm -hmm. And you're, you're into the Salem pro series. Tell me a little bit about what the Salem pro series is and what gave you the idea behind that. Well, pro pro sale, I, I was a sailor. Basically that's what I did. It was when I wasn't, I never was a, car guy. And, um, I think one of the things that helped us be as objective as we were was the fact that we weren't car guys. Sure. Most of the people that were involved in the sport were gearheads. We were strictly marketing. It it either made sense or it didn't. It was like tight. They didn't care what your budget was. They didn't, it didn't matter to them what the budget was. If you didn't make your numbers though, you're in trouble. So if you want to spend $30 million a year or $50 million a year, it doesn't matter because we're going to have to sell that many net extra cases beyond what we already sold off of that car going into that, that mm-hmm. grocery store. So have at it, big boy. You can spend $50 million, go ahead. You got to make it yeah. at the end of the day. Well, we just um, uh, l- looked at it. From that standpoint, now the the, the Salem Pro Sale series um, came out of my love of sailing in general. Um, I just I traveled around the country with Hobie Cat, competing nationally, and that's what I did to kind of clear my head from over here because there here again I was not going to the track as much as in our company. Whenever you got promoted, you didn't get more money. You got to go to less races. <laughs> and a lot of people say, what do you mean you get to go to less races? It's, it's just, it's, it's a torturous, uh, lifestyle. When you, you, everybody says, well, boy, you got it made. Uh, uh-uh. you do it for a little while and you find out that you don't really, as John Force told me one time, he says, I don't have a life. 
I don't have a life. I've got a place I've got to be every single day. I, I don't, I can't make a decision. It's made for me. So I started playing with sailing and loved sailing and did that as a pastime. And then I met a lot of the, uh, America's Cup skippers and a lot of the nationally ranked sailors from around wherever and was in Newport, Rhode Island for something. I forgot what it was. And we were in a, a meeting at the New York Yacht Club uh, about something and someone brought up, well, why can't we do professional sailing? Um, Sid, why don't you, why don't you do a NASCAR styled sailing series for where we get paid to sail boats. So I said, well, we, we could, I mean, that, that, that might make some sense. So I've talked to my guys at ESPN and, uh, who was, who we were real close with, not only from NASCAR, but with rodeo and everything else. I knew them all. I said, what if I put together a, a professional sailing series and gave you exclusive TV rights to it? Uh, and they said, that's like watching grass grow. I said, you don't, you don't, you don't understand how, how I said, let me just give you one statistic. More people die racing sailboats a year than all other sports worldwide. What? Yes. More people die racing sailboats a year than all other sports combined. Why is that? I said, because you're dealing with the two most powerful forces on earth, the wind and the sea. Yeah. And when you put them together, something breaks. And when it breaks and it hits you, it kills you. Or you fall overboard and you drown. Or a boom hits you in the head knocks half your head off. They're going, wow, can you capture that on film? I said, yeah. With the boats we've got in mind, you can. Yeah. So we did the Pro Cell 40s and uh, threw the rule book out, um, almost a no-holes-barred. Um, you just got to go around the course and how you get around it is up to you. And, uh, uh, so that's kind of what we, what we did when we had pro sale series. And we did that for about, uh, three years. Salem was, Salem came along kind of when I was thinking about it and they called me up and said, we heard about what you were talking about. want to come show you something. We can't show outside the room. But you got to sign a confidentiality agreement. And I said, no problem. And they showed me the new packet. It was a sailboat on a Salem package, a green sailboat on a white package. And they said, uh, it might make sense for us to sponsor the Salem Pro Sale Series. And I said, well, yeah. They said, well, do you think we'll get any pushback from your, your Newport, Rhode Island bunch? Because sailing is pretty clean. I mean, it's clean stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no grease and oil going around there. It's, it's, it's kind of a hotty totty kind of thing. It's a sport of kings. Well, <clears throat> I said I don't think so. And you know, we never got one article written negatively about the Salem Cigarette sponsor of the Salem Pro Sale Series. Not one. The whole time. There you go. So that's how we did that. And that's why we did it. Uh, what? Well, being from Asheboro, how'd you get into sailing? I, when I was in college at East Carolina, I went down to Little Washington, North Carolina, one Saturday, and I was standing by the water, and I was watching some guys 
rig a sailboat and go sailing off across the, the sound. And uh, it kind of piqued my interest. And then I came back home and uh, saw some Hobie cats on TV. Then I got a brochure when I was at the beach later. And it was over a little period of time. And then I decided I wanted to buy uh, a Hobie cat and uh, didn't know anything about sailing. And uh, the Hobie dealer here was a dealer by the name of Inland Sailing Center in Charlotte. And it happened to be owned by Lee Holman. And Lee Holman is the Holman of Holman Moody. His dad was John Holman. They were Ford Racing's. They were the Ford Racing Team, basically. Okay. Holman Moody is one of the most famous names in the history of, of racing. But Lee didn't have anything to do with, didn't want to have anything to do with the racing piece. He wanted his own sailboat store, so he sold hubbycats and other boats. And so um, I bought one from him and came up here to Cowboys Ford Country Club on Lake Norman and started sailing around and I, I i noticed it was kind of a funny story i i saw this picture of this boat it had it had uh, i liked it because it was colorful it had a uh, a baby blue um sail a mainsail and jib and a yellow trampoline and white hulls and it was really cool looking so i called up and said can you can you send me one yes i talked to this guy at Inland santa center and i said i want uh baby blue sails yep we got that I said can you put a yellow trampoline on it he says yep we can do that because you can interchange them all mm -hmm. colors and white hulls he said yep got that and i said and i'll need a trailer and he said okay i said how much is it he told me i said okay when can i have it he said i have it for you this afternoon he said but that's nothing we just pull sails out here and put the trampoline on there and put the hulls together and we'll stick it on the trailer and you can come by after lunch. I said, okay. So I go out there to pick up my boat and I'm looking around for it and I don't see it. And I walk in the door and I said, I'm Sid Morris. And, uh, uh, this gentleman's standing there and he said, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm here to pick up my boat. I ordered, a. uh, Hobie 16 with blue sails and a yellow trampoline and white hulls. He said, we don't have one. And I said, what do you mean you don't have one? I just talked to you on the phone. He said, didn't talk to me. And I hear this voice in the back of the room going, Lee, I got his boat back here. Quit messing with him. And I, I couldn't figure it out. It was all these weird cosmic things. And a guy by the name of Gene Carney was, uh, went on to become the airport manager out here in Charlotte. Uh, was Lee's partner in the Inland Sailing Center. And I talked to Gene that morning. And Gene had built the boat, and he put it back there. Well, when Lee found out about it, he, he, he threw a fit. And I didn't know why he would throw a fit. Well, I found out on Saturday. He, they said, you got to come up. And one of, sail one of the successes behind Hobie Cat was because they would have weekend regattas. So maybe you don't know anything about sailing. Maybe your wife doesn't know anything about sailing, but you want to learn how to sail. So you buy a Hobie cat. Well, you just show up at Callens Ford Country Club, and we will get on the boat with you, and we'll show you how to sail it. Okay. Okay. So I went up there, and I didn't know. I'd sailed a little bit, but I didn't know much. 
And there, here's a fleet out there sailing. There's nobody on shore. A few wives hanging out, but everybody's out there sailing. But there's one boat that's way out in front of everybody else. And it's got light blue sails and a yellow trampoline. And that was Lee. That was his boat. Those were his colors. <laughs> and then I figured it out. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't want me to have his colors. And he and I became uh, arch enemies, number one, and, and great the greatest of friends, number two. And uh, we would I would go down to his house at the lake and... And uh, we would go sailing and ride motorcycles and did just he and I had lunch together probably three times a week. So that's that's my sailing story. Who's your favorite person that you've worked with of all of these interesting personalities and characters throughout NASCAR and sailing? And if you had to pick one, who was your favorite person to work with? Who do you think that'd be? In NASCAR? In, it'd be anything. NASCAR, sailing. Boy, that's a tough one. That, that goes that through sounds about, like you've worked goes, with a lot of really that, good people. That goes, yeah, that's a really, really, really tough one. I, I don't know. <clears throat> I, I, I would, <clears throat> I'd have to say Gil Cashin was as close to a brother of mine as you could get. He was the um, national sales manager for General Motors AC Delco. Um, he had 4,000 4, guys that worked for him. And Gil um, came to me to put the Western Auto program together. And um, he was without a doubt he was a short he was a short guy with a huge personality and uh he just uh, and i he he'd call me up during the weekend he'd say sydney my son my boy my child what are you doing this weekend and i said i don't know gil what am i doing this weekend he says you're playing with me in the GGO uh, Pro-Am. I said, I am. He says, yes, I'll send, I'm going to send a car for you. He's always send a car for me because General Motors had plenty of cars. Sure. <laughs> and I would go and we would go places. And what had happened was, is we put the program together for Western Auto. And we were in Daytona with the kickoff of Western Auto. And it was a, it was kind of a rocky start because of, of AC Delco's primary sponsorship of the car and, and this and that and this and that. And I had to kind of, kind of intercede in a few turf battles of how big was the logo going to be here and that and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but we got past all of that. And, uh, <clears throat> right after that, and I didn't know Gil that well. But, but we got to know each other pretty darn well. He went to France and he smoked and his wife smoked. Lucia was her name. And, um, she got really sick when they got back. Mm. And, um, she, I, th- I want to say it was Mother's Day 
or something. They were out dancing or something. And she got really sick and she started throwing up blood. And so they took her to the hospital there in Michigan, in Detroit. Big hospital. And long story short, she didn't make it. And um, they called me up the next day and and Terry Koontz with Western Auto and, and, and some of the really close friends to Gil. Um, and so we took off and, and went up there and she, she had passed away. And so <clears throat> Gil tried to tough it out, you know, just tried to not be emotional about it. Um, but you could tell it was really, really hurting him bad. And for about, for about every weekend for almost a year, I would go to, I'd have to go to Detroit to be with Gil because he couldn't be by himself. He could be working, um, with his, doing his job with people. But when it comes to the weekend, when he'd have free time on his hand, he needed somebody to be with him and he would call me up and I would go. Yeah. And so we just, um, um, he was a great guy. He passed away a couple of years back, like three or four years back, uh, had cancer real bad. Didn't mm-hmm. didn't even know it. I mean, it was like he was going nine hundred miles an hour, and then all of a sudden, boom! You know, he gets diagnosed with cancer, and it had gone so far that he just he didn't have a chance. But uh, I would say, without a doubt, anybody, <laughs> anybody, anybody that knew Gil Cashin would tell you the same thing. Okay. That he was the most one of the most interesting people you could run into. Mm. So you're involved in a couple other things other than, uh, you know, I guess direct marketing, like your career has been. What is the NOAA Foundation, and how did the NOAA Foundation come about? The NOAA Foundation is is uh, uh, I set it up because NOAA had an arc, and that arc was designed to save. Uh, the animals and humanity from the from the big flood. Um, a, a guy gave me a book called uh, One Second After. Have you read it? I have not. You should. Um, One Second After was w- written by uh, uh, Bill Fortune. And Bill is a brilliant writer. And he was a very close friend of of Newt Gingrich and he was up in Washington one day. Newt came in the room and threw his briefcase across the wall, hit the wall and said, you know, these people, that's when he was speaker of the house. He says, I cannot get people to understand how dangerous electromagnetic pulse is. You need to write a book about it. Talk, talking to, to Bill. And so, Bill said, okay, and nine days later, he had written One Second After. And what One Second After is, is what happens when electromagnetic pulse is discharged on Black Mountain, North Carolina, in Asheville. And what made it so interesting to me, it was, it was in our neighborhood. Yeah. Um, cars stopped going up down I-40. Um, you know, there was no power. Uh, there were no lights. Nothing would work, you know, so you, so you see anarchy starting and you see what happens to, to human nature whenever 
um, people can't get their pills or their medicine. And where do they go? Where's the first place they go? They go to the pharmacy because the pharmacist knows everybody in town what they, what pills they need. Who needs insulin? Or am I going to get insulin now? It's not going to come. So she had to, to, to dole it out. So this book bothered me because it's a real thing. It's really real. And yeah. It's really there now. Um, China, Korea, uh, Russia, about about every every major power uh, on Earth has electro electromagnetic pulse weapons, and it's real simple. All you have to do is just put a uh, uh, a, a small nuclear uh, blast three hundred miles above the center of the United States. It takes out. 99% of the people in this country will be dead in a year. Mm. Well, it can be done. It can be done right now, today, or tomorrow. So I started bothering me, and I said, well, what am I going to do about it? So I put together a group of the people, Bill Fortune's one, and he led me to Peter Pry and all of these other people that were in, at head of the uh, National EMP Commission in Washington and uh, Congressional EMP Commission and this and that and uh, so I brought them down here to where you are right now. When you walked in today, there was a table set up down there that 12 people could sit around. And um, we formed NOAA. And uh, it stands for Neighborhoods of Alternative Homes, basically where you would put in, um, we designed a place up in the mountains where it was all off-grid. It was wind power, solar power, Three or four different sources of water, uh, heat, all food, thirty years worth of food, and all that kind of stuff. So that's what NOAA is. Mm. It's it's looking at the what I found out early on in this gestation period was just because somebody says something works, particularly in the survivalist community where they're talking about water filters and this and that and this and that and generators and solar power and stuff like that. I made the example to people that if you're being a boater again, if I'm on a, if I'm on a, a, a ship at sea and we spring a leak and, and I know the ship's going down, then I get everybody up to the bridge deck, put their life jackets on because we're in survival mode now and I've got the life raft. And when we throw that life raft overboard, it better inflate. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't know whether it's going to inflate or not because it's just been sitting in this little canister for the whole time. And the same way with Noah's, we put the Noah lab together that said, okay, let's try this product and see if it'll work. I mean, people say it works. Yeah. But does it work? Well, we found out that 90% of it didn't didn't work so that's kind of what we spent most of our time and effort on but that's what noah is that's pretty interesting mm -hmm. good for you for taking that on i'm sure that's out of sight out of mind for most people it is it's like everything else until it hits you in the face you know it's just like yeah. anything else most people don't get motivated until their house is burning down yeah yeah um, i used to do a, a bunch of uh site design work for an energy company I won't name. Uh, but we did a bunch of substation infrastructure design and transmission 
connectivity. So it's interesting to, to get a peek behind the curtain of what goes on behind the scenes at the energy company level and some of the different controls and that type of stuff that they have in place, which I, I don't know. We didn't specifically talk about an EMP, but it is, I guess, nice to know that the energy companies are attempting to make interconnectivity and make the grid modernization more efficient and able to withstand stuff like that. Let's hope so. Yeah. The problem is you've got a you've I mean got a national yeah. You've got a national uh you know, Department of Energy, uh the FERC uh doesn't take responsibility for it. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission does not take responsibility for it. I've been up there talking to them. They they're clueless. I mean I'm clueless about what to do with an EMP. Yeah. And they say it's not even our department. And I said, well if it's not your department, whose department is it? Homeland Security. That's a homeland security issue. I said, Homeland Security What's Homeland Security got to do with electromagnetic pulse? That's an energy problem. So then you go to Homeland Security and they're going, well, that's an energy problem. Well, there's, that's a Homeland Security problem. The bottom line is it's a typical government situation of nobody's going to do anything. They're yeah. just getting paid to run around in a circle. And so certainly they're not going to regulate the energy companies to do anything. And the energy company has no incentive whatsoever to do it because it's just going to cost them money. And the way they look at it is it's a very low probability but high impact problem. Yeah. If, if it were to accidentally happen, which is low probability, it would be devastating. So... Since it's such a low probability, we're not going to go out here and we're not going to put insulators where they need to be. And we're not going to spend the money to, to, to harden our grid mm-hmm. against this low probability. But guess what? It's not low probability anymore. Neither was an, a worldwide pandemic. You know, it was low probability too, but now guess what? Yeah. It's not low prob- probability anymore. Well, as dependent as society is on electricity. That you, be, we, you better have an alternative. That we weren't 115, 15, 120 years ago. I mean, there's a lot of people that are probably going to struggle if the lights go out and stay out. Well, they won't live long. I mean, it's just, you just if you read one second, if you, if you just read one second after, if your listeners do anything after this, is go out and buy. One second after by William Forstian. Um, it's, uh, it looks like this. Okay. Perfect. That's what it looks like. I'll probably be ordering my copy tonight. Uh, read that book and, uh, with the forward by Newt Gingrich. And uh, you will uh, take that one with you. No, I'll get, I'll get, I can grab me a copy. I'll certainly uh, pick me one up, though. So, being a 
successful business owner, what type of advice would you have somebody for that's starting out or trying to make it? Or, I mean, is there, I, I mean, aside from hard work, because there's no substitute for hard work and work ethic. I mean, what kind of advice would you give to somebody starting out? Yeah, personally, I have vested interest in this question because it seems like you've done well for yourself and you've made quite an impact in, in ways that you probably don't even realize anymore. Uh, well, first of all, invest in rabbits and get some rabbits fit. <laughs> okay. Like I said, the, that, that luck part comes out there, but it, it's, it's being able to recognize it. Uh, people, people have a lot of opportunities that they don't see. It's just kind of like Daniel Boone and these guys that were that that, that that conquered the frontier out there. They could see things. They could see the tracks. They could see the trail to go on. And most people don't. They 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 don't see, you know, where the opportunity is. So I would say, first of all, keep your eyes open. Take advantage of every possible uh, opportunity you can get. And that means that means doing things that, that are not necessarily um, convenient. Be willing you know, to take a risk. Get out there and and get amongst people and talk to them. And you can't meet enough people. You can't talk to enough people. Um, always keep your, your head to the ground um, and uh, your ear to the ground and just keep uh, – just keep plugging hard. I mean, it's, there's not any particular people write books about it, but there's not any particular thing that I can tell you other than this. Don't get set, I guess, on a particular mindset, be flexible in your thinking of that might not be. It's like, with the speedway, that's the last place I would have ended up if it hadn't been for that call. But that right. call was just, uh, it was just fortuitous. It was just one of those things that came along that happened. I don't know why. But there is no secret. No secret to success. <laughs> I don't think there's a secret to success. It's just, it's, it does take hard work, but also you can't discount that luck factor but then a lot of people make their own luck and you just got to kind of recognize it i guess and say well what about that over there so yeah so one i one last one last thing i'd like to ask you about before we um finish up here and that's how in the world did you end up becoming a helicopter pilot oh it was just a general progression um I, we would fly. I flew. I built model planes as a kid. Loved flying. Um, my uncle had a little Piper Tri-Pacer up in a town called Balfour, which is north of Ashboro. Mm -hmm. And I would ride my bicycle up there with my friend, my neighbor, Joe. We would ride our bicycles up. And it was it's probably 10 miles or better up there. And back then, you didn't have five-speed bicycles. You had a one-speed bicycle. <laughs> and we would ride up there. That's and, good exercise. Yeah. And we would ride up up to the airport. And it was a little place called Henshaw Field. And it was a behind Henshaw Hosiery Mill. And it was it was a, a little grass strip that ran down 
you get to the end of it, you're not flying yet. You start running down the hill and you start flying. Then you go across the street and then it goes back up again. So, I mean, it was like getting in and out of there was, was quite an experience. Anyway, we would ride up there and get in my uncle's airplane and pretend like we were flying and just be so intent on flying it because he would show me, my uncle would call me and, because he, he had three daughters, no sons. So every day he would go out flying, learning to fly. He would call me to tell me because he knew I loved to fly or loved planes. And he would have to tell somebody. His wife didn't want to hear it. The three oh, girls yeah. didn't want to hear it. So my Uncle Willie would call. And my mother said, Uncle Willie's on the phone. So he would tell me about it. And he would explain it to me. And it stuck. I mean, it was just like, that's all you think about. Mm-hmm. And... um Whenever I got the opportunity to fly later, I already knew how. I mean, my mind already knew how. I hadn't physically done it, but I might as well be physically doing it because I dreamed about it. Um, so then I started flying at a very young age, um, soloed when I was 16, um, and just putzed around with it. And then when I started playing music and traveling around with bands and stuff, I quit doing that. And then I went to college and I didn't do that. I flew a little bit in college. And then, um, when I got, when I got over the sail sailing piece of, of my interest, um, I just decided I would, uh, um, maybe get it, get an airplane and, uh, so I did. I got a uh, a Waco, which is a biplane, uh, which is a really exciting airplane to fly. Then I got an air cam, and but all along I had been flying in business to go for advertising this and that. Now mm-hmm. we would charter planes, and I would fly. I would get in the right hand seat, and I would fly. I would let have them let me fly, so I could learn how to fly twins and different things and then when we started needing to get people in and out of racetracks without having to go through a bunch of traffic I, it dawned on me that maybe we could just helicopter get a helicopter to come in there so we started chartering helicopters and so when we did that i did the same thing i got a helicopter and would would fly it with the helicopter pilot and so at, after a while of flying i decided well i've done this and i've done that i might as well stick some sharp sticks in my eyes and learn how to fly a helicopter. And that's what it's like. Uh, so I did. And, uh, my, my, my teacher, Ronnie Grower, who's Swiss, a very, very good pilot. He said, uh, that it would be cheaper for me to buy the helicopter that I was learning in than to pay him to rent the helicopter and his time. Wow. And so I said, okay, well, he says, and it's for sale. A friend of mine in Lexington, Kentucky owns this one you've been flying. We were at lunch. I said, well, get him on the phone. He got him on the phone, and I bought it. And so that's the, how I started flying helicopters. That's crazy. I mean, you got your own setup here, right? I mean, you got yeah. your own, you built your own uh, helicopter pad over your boat dock and... Yes, sir. 
I can't. I couldn't think of a better way to avoid Charlotte traffic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only problem is I don't. I don't. Don't fly enough. Oh, you know. I mean, it's just. It's like the, you know, you have motorcycles, you have cars. You, you know, you, people, you you amass certain things, and everybody that I know that have toys, uh, they can't get around to using them. I got two dirt bikes sitting in my building right now. Yeah. And it, that, and you don't use them yep. and they just sit there and that, you know, it's like all my batteries are, you see the, the trickle chargers on the batteries down there because all the batteries are dead because I'm not using anything. So once the spring comes, we'll probably use it a little bit. But, uh, so, so did I catch that you were a musician? Yes. I played music, uh, started out young playing music and my mother got me a piano my grandma from my grandma's house it was an up, old upright piano and i i was um back in the floyd kramer days and i would i played piano and then there was a <clears throat> there was a uh guy by the name of frank allman in ashboro um that had a farm the allman family farm and his daddy gave him the barn the, the the top of the barn and that back the the barn was huge i mean it was big and um frank had this band and i don't know how i found out about it or they found out about me or something but uh, um i was 14 i think of course i couldn't drive my mother would drive me out there for Saturday night. They had a big barn dance every Saturday night, the top of this barn. And then we would play country music and uh, started out doing that. And then I got a ba- got in a band that was a rhythm and blues band uh, traveling around uh, all over the state. And then I, I went, when I went to college, I had a band, another band uh, and we bought bus and all that kind of stuff so we did a lot of traveling around still play not much i can i can but i don't practice you know it's like everything else you have to practice right i'm trying to get back into my golf game i haven't played golf in a long time so i'm gonna get back try to get back to playing golf because a bunch of my buddies are out playing golf now and i just haven't been messing with it so okay sounds like you're a busy man true i appreciate you taking uh some time out for this. I think you've got a, a very interesting story. Well, I appreciate you coming by and uh, glad to share it with you and hope your your listeners and viewers uh, enjoy it. And uh, anytime you want to come back, let me know. All right. Well, thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcast to be notified of new episodes. Remember to be on the lookout for new episodes at the first of every month. If you feel so inclined, please leave us a review and comment on what you like the most. If you know someone who has a good story to tell or suggestions on how to improve, please email us at info at ncretold.com. Carolina.